And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. That's the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And if you're following along in those red church Bibles, that's on page 905. And it'll also be on the screen behind me. Now, if you need a Bible, please take this one home. It's a gift from us to you. See, we'd love everybody to have a Bible that is written in plain, everyday English so that you can actually read it and understand it and it can bless you and guide you. Jesus' suffering is over. His longest week is over. We've been in this series. We started it in the beginning of Lent, calling it the longest week. And I pray that this series has been a blessing to you. I pray that it didn't feel like the longest series. <laughs> you know what I mean? I pray that, that as we took each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right? As we walk through the days of the last week of Jesus' life, I pray that it blessed you. Let's read tonight's passage. It will be on the screen behind me as well. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Again with the anointing. Remember the anointing at Bethany? Even in death, we belong to God. Anointing, as you remember, is the sign that shepherds would give to their sheep to protect them, to keep them alive from the mites and the things that would kill them. And it became the sign of God's people that we are his sheep and he protects us, and he owns us, guides us. And these women went to him. Verse 2, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away this stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Isn't it amazing? The risen Lord decided to meet with his disciples where it all started in this small, practically no-name town. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. It's the word of God. I'm going to preach today. There are some things to draw out of this text, but really it's, it's pretty clear. The story is pretty clear. 
And if you've been hanging out with us, you know that Jesus has been telling his disciples the whole time. And it's all been leading up to this, where Jesus would die and then he would rise again. My message tonight is, the last word ain't death. The last word ain't death. This is pretty raw for me. Just a couple of days ago, I was sitting in the hospital and I prayed over a young woman in the moments that her spirit left this world. She died way too young. And next week, we're going to honor her. So if any of you can, it'd be a good idea to bring flowers. If you have any cash, the family's going to be here. And we're just going to love, we're just going to love this family. Last week, I preached on the crucifixion of Christ, and I reminded you that you must walk through that grimy, stone-cold, uninviting door of the death of Jesus. You must go through the cross to become a Christian. So let me back up and ask you a question. Are Christians optimists or are we pessimists? You know, we have these two things, right? We have the cross and we have the resurrection. And I guess it depends on your experiences. It depends on, like everybody has a different set of experiences with church, right? And so depending on their experiences, they'll tell you something different, whether they think Christians are optimists or whether they're pessimists. And some of you may be burnt out on childlike, unbearable optimism. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, like, tried to grab a, a cigarette or something, calm your nerves, to have a friend beat it down from you and say, you just need to pray this away. Now, never mind the person who did that has like a hundred shades of struggle themselves that they're nowhere near overcoming, right? Like, that would be like me telling you like, hey, you need to lose weight. <laughs> I have 10 tips. <laughs> I, 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 you just have to listen to me, right? You don't want to hear that from me, right? <laughs> I'm not a good source of information for that. You, maybe you're like me and you need your cup of coffee to be below a certain point in the morning before you're ready to talk to other human beings, right? And some may call that being a pessimist, but I just like to call it being realistic. Others might have had the opposite experience. Your, your, your experience of church was Christ is always pictured on the crucifix. He's always on the cross. It's like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie playing on every cable channel all the time, 24-7. Right? And healing now, transformation now, now that's mostly for heaven. Right? Right now, we just like, we meditate on the fact that he died and we think about how he suffered for us. And if you want those things, you need to wait in line. And you might taste some transformation now, but good luck with that. Pessimists, 
Christian pessimist. At Epiphany Church, our desire is to live in the reality of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I believe Christians shouldn't be like Eeyore. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Eeyore, he's like, you know, he talked like this, and he's always depressed, and you know what I mean? But at the same time, at the same time, we ought to be realists, right? We ought to be realists. This, this life is, the Bible calls this planet the low land of sorrows for a reason. There's a lot of stuff you got to go through to live here. I've met, I've met lots of brothers and sisters who literally say, this is another kind of pessimism, you know, this world is a sinking ship. What's the point of polishing the brass on the Titanic? Right? Like this world is like the Titanic. And so why should we polish the brass? We know it's going to hit an iceberg. It's going gonna, it's gonna to split in two. And it's all going down. And, you know, they would ask, like, what was the point of you giving out, cooking up 200 hot dogs, giving out 300 meals to families? What's the point of doing those things? Because people are stuck in their depression. They're stuck in whatever they're going through. And what you're doing doesn't add anything of eternal value. So all we want to do, we don't want to reach out. All we want to do is we want to know the Bible, study the Bible. We're not going to do any of that stuff. We don't care about people's bodies. We only care about their souls. And I could keep asking them, well, what's the point of hugging your kids when they're hurt? What's the point of feeding them every day? What's the point of getting up and going to your job? What's the point of moving on? See, saying that what happens after you die matters. Saying that there is something after death, saying that there is resurrection, is not saying that this life doesn't matter, but in fact brings to focus everything we do in this life. It makes everything we do in this life actually matter. Every second matters. And for those who aren't sure if the Bible is reliable or true, let me ask you to consider some things that I would say deep down in your soul, you want to be real. That desire deep in your heart, that justice really matters and it's true. If death is the last word, if death is the last word, the universe is stupidly unjust. So you can be a genocidal maniac with like a hundred women and just live your life for yourself and kill whoever you want. Then you die. And that's it. Like, is there justice? That beauty really matters. That justice really matters and that beauty really matters. And beauty is not just the fleeting and fading beauty we see in each other, in our spouses, in our kids, in other people, but real lasting beauty is, the un, is unfading and unending. And listen, yeah, we are, hum, we are 
part of us, like, part of what we are is animals, right? And there's programming and there's chemicals and we can measure it and we know when we see something beautiful we're attracted to, it causes something in us and we know all that. But what I'm saying is there are many things in life that science cannot measure under a microscope. And if we deny that, then we have nothing to say to the person who says, you know what, beauty for me and the, is, is just me understanding these responses and what gives me joy and what I think is beautiful is pornography. And I'm just going to look at it all day long, seven days a week. And there is nothing you can say to that unless you say, you know what, beauty is real. And if that's you, I just want you to hear me say right now, that addiction, and it is an addiction, it's real. You're chasing something real, but you're chasing it in the wrong spot. You're chasing the counterfeit. Justice matters. Beauty matters. Truth matters. And this life is a test. And you don't just get to live however you want. And you don't get to think you're wise enough to figure everything out on your own. You need to be guided. Every single act of your life matters. See, the Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8, where he says, They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, the next portion in the Mark, you'll notice that most of your translations will show you this, that it was added later. And probably some monk, monk, right, who was copying the Gospel of Mark at some point saw that, hey, Mark ends kind of strangely. It ends with his disciples just afraid. <laughs> and all the other Gospels end with the risen Lord giving the disciples a task to go and share the Gospel throughout the world. So shouldn't, yeah, so we're going to add that. <laughs> so it's like a little bits and pieces from the other accounts. And then you also got some interesting stuff about holding snakes, them biting you, you being good. And I hate to burst your bubble. It's not written by Mark. Why would, John, why would Mark end his gospel this way? You know, throughout the ages, each gospel came to have a symbol that that represented the character of that gospel. You know what the symbol of Mark has been for centuries? A lion. It's a lion. And it makes sense that it actually ends with this, with his followers confused, afraid, running, scared. These disciples followed Jesus around. They saw him do crazy stuff. They saw him feed 5,000 people with a kid's lunch. He saw him heal the sick. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him bring sight to the blind. They saw him touch the untouchable. And now they see him beat. They see him crucified. They see him die. And now they see him rise again. 
And you know what? If it were you or I, our human minds could not comprehend that. Well, first of all, get this, the one they walked around with, at least they knew, they might have been terrified with them. It's Mark's gospel, by the way, where Jesus tells the storm, just be quiet. And then Peter's like, I'm scared to death of you. <laughs> like, we like to think of Jesus' stories like maybe you, were, you grew up and you, you, you went to Sunday school and they had the flannel graph. You ever see the flannel graph? You put the, the little pieces on felt board. Simon knows what I'm talking about. Maybe he's the only one. But, or maybe you got the little you know, child's Bibles and this kind of stuff. Jesus is always kind. He's always got like a lamb in one hand and a little baby in the other. But the real Jesus, the real Jesus would terrify you. Because no man is supposed to be able to do the things that he did. And no one could understand. He was dead. We saw it. And he came back from death. Last week, as we saw, it was the outsider, the Roman centurion, the one who helped Jesus who hung him on the cross is the one who cries out, surely this is the Son of God. Mark wants you to figure this stuff out on your own. He doesn't come out and tell you what to do with this. He doesn't come out and tell you, like the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John is going to tell you who Jesus is. <laughs> like verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. <laughs> Jesus is the Lagos, the one who all creation was created through. But Mark's tactic is completely different. He just, he just gives you this short account of Jesus' life, and it's just very real, and just shows you that his disciples are freaked out. One of the greatest English-speaking preachers that ever lived his name C.H. Spurgeon, and he once said, you do not need to defend the gospel. That's like, defending the gospel is like keeping a bear in a cage. Like, let's picture this. We got a bear. This was actually a thing like 100, 150 years ago. It was like entertainment. They would catch a bear. They'd have him in a cage. And they'd put him like in the middle of a village. <laughs> and Imagine we had a caged bear at the corner of Monmouth and Broadway. Now, we might have to be concerned about the bear if, as long as the bear's in the cage, right? As long as the bear's in the cage, people might do some stupid stuff to the bear, right? But we don't need to stand in front of the cage like defending the bear. What we need to do is we need to unlock that thing and get out of the way. Because, like, just, just let Mama Bear come out and Mama Bear is going to take care of herself. Mama Bear is going to be fine at the corner of Broadway and Mammoth. The same way the gospel is not this, like, fragile thing that you need to apologize for. You don't have to apologize that you love Jesus. You don't have to apologize that Jesus, you don't have to apologize like, hey, I was in my depression. I was in my loneliness. I was in my addiction. I was in my self-pity. I was in my unbelief. 
And Jesus came into my life and changed it all around. You never have to apologize for that. Last week we talked about abandonment. Jesus was abandoned on the cross. He was abandoned so that you and I never have to be. But he didn't stay abandoned. After he died, they put him in a grave. But his body didn't decay like every other body in all of history. Jesus rose from the dead. When they went to that tomb early that morning, they didn't find his body, but an angel. Resurrection is here today. And I just want to end the next five minutes just talking about why I believe this actually happened. And then next week, I want to share with you why it matters, why it matters for your life. But listen to me right now. I just want to share a few reasons. Now, I could share literally a book on why I believe that this really happened. But let me, let me just give you a few things. Here's one. The 10, 10 out of 12 of Jesus' apostles, they died preaching this gospel. This is not like suicide bombers, right? People die all the time for something they believe in, and it doesn't make it real, right? But when you, when you, when you are a suicide bomber, you are hoping that in your death and bringing the death of others through the other end of that, you will be rewarded with life, right? But Jesus and his apostles, they went out and they gave up their life so that those who were putting them to death would have life. And it wasn't a second handler. The apostles weren't second handlers. They were people who hung around Jesus for three years, saw all the stuff they did that he did. Now, if they wanted to make this up, if they wanted to make this up, it's hard to imagine that 10 of them would go out, make this stuff up about Jesus, say, this is going to really serve us. This is going to really serve us. We were hanging around this rabbi. He died. Let's, let's steal his body and tell everybody he rose from the dead. And then go around and then all be killed, except for the one who betrayed him and the other one who ended up exiled on an island for the rest of his life. Another reason, the early history, the early historic witnesses, okay, the best place to learn about Jesus is in the four accounts that we call the Gospels. That's the best place to learn about him. But it's far from the only, okay? So if you go and you read historians and emperors and people of that time, Josephus, Cornelius, Tacticus, Lucian, Pliny the Younger, Thallius, and more. Basically, everyone who mattered in that Palestinian region in those first couple centuries wrote about Jesus. You know, some people talk about they're exploring their faith and they need to go deeper. 
And I respect that if that's a legitimate thing. I remember I was, uh, I was down here at the King Street Pub uh, months ago, and I, I was sitting there, and the, the one who owns the shop, she's a friend, and she says, listen to this guy who was sitting there. Listen, you need to talk to this guy. He's Pastor Joe, and he makes sense. You should talk to him. And he comes up to me, and he's like, oh, I'm the wrong guy. <laughs> I'm the wrong guy. See, I know all this stuff's a fraud, and I know about the, the hidden books and the lost books, and, and uh, he's telling me about these books you know, you ever hear the gospel according to Peter? Have you ever heard, like, all this stuff Dylan's learned in seminary? And I'm just smiling. Okay, okay. And I asked him, I said, you know, did you, so have you read these? What do you think of them? Yeah, like, well, I haven't really gotten the time to read them myself. And I, I said, okay, well, well then how did you hear about this? Because, because, you know, I don't mean no harm. And, you know, when you say I don't mean no harm, you're about to harm someone, right? That's... <laughs> Let's be honest. That's what you say when you're about to harm someone. I don't need no harm, but, but, you know, I got two degrees, and this is my life. You know what I mean? So I have read these books you're talking about, and I know about them. You know what I mean? And they're not shocking to me at all. And I can tell you why they were written hundreds of years after Jesus and have no relationship to the original Gospels. And he says, well, well, yeah, I saw it on the History Channel. <laughs> so, so the dude is bragging, like, I'm the wrong guy. You know what I mean? Like, I know my stuff. So you saw it on, like, a 50-minute episode of the History Channel. The same channel, by the way, and I like a lot of shows on History Channel, but the same channel, by the way, that has that one dude with the, the, the white dude with the huge fro who's like, every ancient massive building was built by aliens. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Every one of them was built by ancient astronauts who came and designed the pyramids and did this and that. And so I'm like, so I'm like, so I'm like listen, I'm like, that's your source. This is your life and the life to come. And that, is, that was your fact check, your 50-minute episode of the History Channel. Listen, I want to encourage you to read both sides, like legitimately, if you really are searching, you know, maybe come to Theology on Tap. It's a ministry we do every month. Our next, our next one is this month. We're going to talk about paganism and Christianity. And a friend of mine who lives a couple blocks from here is going to co-host it. And he describes himself as a guy who follows the old Norse gods. There's this guy named Pascal. He was a brilliant guy, and he invented the calculator and the wristwatch about 400 years ago. And he was told when he was a little kid, math is forbidden. And like most little boys, when you tell them something's forbidden, yeah, like dive into it. And let me tell you this. Religion waxes and wanes, and, and religion, you know, it does all kinds of things. But true Jesus-shaped spirituality has always been out of vogue. <laughs> has never been cool. <laughs> anyway, he was a genius and uh, a mathematician, but also helped a lot of people who had doubts think deeper about that. One of the things he says is, the heart has reasons that reason knows not. What does that mean? 
the heart has reasons that reason knows not. And what he meant by that is basically no one is able to come to the question of God and the question of the resurrection, did it really happen, like they're completely unbiased. No one can come to it like, like uh, well, I'll come as, a, as an investigator and I'll be completely unbiased. You know why? Because if he did raise from the dead, guess what? He's God and everything he said is true. Everything he said is true. You want to look at the back of the bulletin? I had one up here, but I gave... This is a quote by a pastor in New York called, named Tim Keller. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't raise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. There are many, many other reasons, and I don't have time for them. I'll give you one really quick. The 500 witnesses, the many, many witnesses. Paul wrote letters 10 years after a risen Jesus was walking around, and he said, some of you saw him, and you can ask them about it. If you wanted to invent a lie, you wouldn't do it the way the Gospels do it. You wouldn't have, as we read in this account, three women be the first ones that see Jesus, right? That, I mean, that see that he rose from the dead. You wouldn't do that. You know why? Because back in the first century, a woman's voice had no value in the court. You wouldn't write the Gospels the way it was written where they are constantly the authors are constantly making themselves look bad. If you wanted to start a religion, you wouldn't, like in the Gospel of John, when stuff goes south and things get crazy, you know what happens? Is that the beloved disciple, who is John, he doesn't even name himself, and you can see why, because he runs away naked. One of the women in this passage, Salome, is the wife and the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And you remember what they did? They went to this town and Jesus preached and they didn't receive Jesus. And you know what they said to Jesus? They're like, hey, Jesus. These are two of um, Jesus' apostles. They're like, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire and just burn this town up because they didn't accept you? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. I came to save this world, not to destroy it. Actually, you could read the Gospels and the entire time what you'll see is that Jesus is teaching his disciples and his disciples are constantly asking dumb questions, doing dumb things. And the encouraging thing about that is we can relate. <laughs> Me and you, we can relate. He doesn't need perfect disciples, but he needs disciples that will follow him and will say at the end of the day, like Peter, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So next week, we will continue to talk about the resurrection. And we're going to talk about why it matters. But I encourage you, if you're like, did this happen? Please talk to someone. Please talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. And it could be me, or it could be some relative or someone you know that like, doesn't believe it, 
but don't go to the History Channel. Don't read a two-page article in Time Magazine that comes out every year that's just a bunch of garbage. Dig deeper because it matters. It matters whether Jesus rose from the dead. Let me pray for us.